13, and Willow, the meadows are not abundant, and the attractions to settlers generally small, the hills are rugged and, though well timbered, not adapted to agriculture, the pine forests are dark and gloomy, and the leafless birches make the distant hills appear as if thinly snow-clad, the willows are generally upon the islands, and grow with great luxuriance, the large meadows are occupied by Russian settlers, many little streams enter the Anwar on both sides, but chiefly from the north, there is a famous cliff called Asajayan, where the river has washed and undermined the high bank so that portions fall away every few years, the current strikes this hill with great force, and where it is reflected the water is broken like the rapids above Niagara, it is a dangerous spot for small boats, and very difficult for them to ascend, when the expedition of 1854 descended the Anwar several barges were drawn into an eddy at this cliff and nearly swamped, Captain Fulio and Mr. Collins, in 1857, were in danger and trouble, especially where the current rebounds from the shore, when our steamer struck this rapid it required all the strength of our engines to carry us through, I desired to examine the shore, but had no opportunity, Mr. Collins found the bank composed of amygdaloid sand, decomposed rock and sandstone, with many traces of iron, on the beach were chalcedony, cornelian, and agate, two veins of coal have been traced in the cliff, and it is thought a large deposit exists there, the natives have a story that the cliff smokes whenever a human being approaches it, but I saw no indications of smoke as I passed, they consider it the abode of evil spirits, and hold it in great dread, the Russians told me that a few wreaths of smoke were visible in summer, caused probably by the decomposition of several coal seams on the upper side of the mountain, up to the present time no coal has been mined along the Anwar, though enough is known to exist, the cheapness and abundance of wood will render coal of little importance for many years to come, Nikolaevsk is supplied with coal from Sakhalin Island, where it is abundant and easily worked, iron ore has been discovered on the upper Anwar and in the Berry Mountains, Captain Anosov proposes to erect a smelting establishment at Blagoveshchensk, supplying it with iron ore from the Berry region and with coal from the Zaya, copper and silver exist in several localities, but the veins have not been thoroughly examined. The mountains are like those in the Nurchinsk district that have yielded so richly in precious metals. Captain Anosov is the brother of my companion across the Pacific, and has seen ten years' service in eastern Siberia. Most of that time he has passed on the Anwar and its tributary streams. In many places he found rich deposits of gold, the last and best being on the Old Uli River, about a hundred miles north of Albazin. A ton of earth yielded $600 worth of gold. I saw the specimens which the captain took out in person. The gold was like the best dulch or scale gold in California, with nuggets up to 4 or 5 ounces in weight. Gold has been found in other localities. On several tributaries of the Uthuri the Chinese have conducted washings for many years. The Russian settlers near Posyad find gold in the streams flowing into the sea. An engineer officer assured me the washings in that region could be made profitable. The government has recently opened the Anwar and its tributaries to private enterprise and invited its citizens to search for gold where they please. This is a concession in the right way, and partially abandons the claim hitherto enforced that all mines belong to the imperial family. Some of the surveys of Captain Anosov have been for private parties at St. Petersburg and the development of the mineral resources of the Anwar is confidently expected in a few years. At present the lack of laborers and machinery is a great drawback, but as the country grows older the mining facilities will increase, 
it is not impossible that a gold fever will sometime arise on the Amor and extend to America. Much of the country I saw along the Amor resembles the gold-bearing regions on the Pacific coast. While we were taking wood at a village above Sajayan I walked on shore and stopped at a little brook flowing from the hills. Carelessly digging with a stick in the bottom of this brook I brought up some black sand, which I washed on a piece of bark. The washing left two or three shining particles that had every appearance of gold. I wrapped them in a leaf to carry on board the steamer, but as I afterward lost envelope and contents, the value of my discovery is to this day unknown. The original inhabitants along this part of the Amor are wandering Dungusians, in no great number and with little wealth. We saw their huts on both banks, principally the southern one. At a Russian village where we stopped there was a man a gray hut or yurt of light poles covered with birch bark. The covering was wound around the framework in horizontal strips that overlapped at the edges like shingles on a house roof. Entering the hut I found a varied assortment of deer skins, cooking and other utensils, dogs, dirt, and children. I gave a small coin to one of the latter, and was immediately surrounded by others who wished to be remembered. The mother of the infant sent one of them to me with a freshly killed goose, which I declined accepting. The head of the establishment examined my watch attentively. But I think his curiosity was simulated, as he must have seen merry watches among the Russians, not to be outdone in curiosity. I admired the trappings attached to his belt. These were a knife, a pipe, pouches for bullets, tinder, powder, tobacco, and flints, a pointed iron for cleaning a pipe, and two or three articles whose use I could not ascertain. His dress was a deerskin frock and leggings and his cap of Chinese felt cloth was in several thicknesses and fitted close to his head. Outside the hut Borstein gave the man a cigar, but the gift was not appreciated. The native preferred tobacco and was better satisfied when I gave him enough to fill his pipe. The man agree smoked the Manjurian tobacco, which is raised in large quantities along the middle Amor and the Songaree. It is much like Connecticut leaf, but has a more pungent flavor, and lacks the delicacy of Havana tobacco. Men women, and children are alike addicted to its use. Our new acquaintance was a hunter, and allowed us, though with hesitation, to look at his rifle. It had a flintlock of curious construction, the hammer being drawn back to a horizontal position and held in place by a notched piece of bone. The breech pin was gone, and a piece of stone fixed in the stock filled its place. The breech of the stock was but little larger than the other part, and seemed very awkwardly contrived. A forked stick is carried to form a rest, that ensures the accuracy of aim. Powder and lead are so expensive that great economy is shown in their use. I was told these natives were excellent marksmen, and rarely missed a shot. When within proper distance of their game they place their supporting sticks very quickly and with such caution as to make no noise. One intoxicated aboriginal stood in the group of Cossacks on the bank and appeared quarrelsome, but found the Russians too good-natured for his purpose. A light shower scattered the crowd and left the inebriated dressing a horse and a wood pile. On the 11th of October the weather was like summer, the air still and clear and my thermometer standing at 71 degrees. During the night I found it necessary to take an extra blanket, and at noon of the 12th the thermometer was at 45 degrees with a cloudy sky and a breeze from the northeast. This change of 26 degrees was too much for comfort, but of little consequence compared to my subsequent experience. Instances have been known of a change of 70 degrees in 12 hours from a sudden shifting of the wind. On the morning of the 13th we had a light fall of snow, 
with the air at freezing point and the water at 40 degrees d footnote d i here enter a protest against the fahrenheit thermometer and think all who have used it to any extent will join me in preferring the centigrade or rheometer scales centigrade has the freezing point at zero and the boiling point at 100 degrees rheometer freezes at zero and boils at 80 degrees fahrenheit very clumsily freezes at 32 degrees and boils at 212 degrees the difference in the graduation of the scale is of much less consequence than the awkwardness of beginning the reading at 32 degrees. The Russians use Rearmer's method, and I always envied them their convenience of saying there are so many degrees of cold, or so many of heat, while I was forced to count from 32 degrees to use my national scale. We passed a rock projecting far into the river, with precipitous sides and a sharp summit visible for some distance along the Amur. Below it is a small harbor where the Russian steamer Malinodishta Little Hope passed the winter of 1855. She was on her way to Stransk, carrying Admiral Puchakin on his return from a mission to Japan. Caught by ice the Nodishta wintered under shelter of this rock, while the Admiral became a horse marine and mounted a saddle for a ride of 400 miles. Since that time the rock has borne the name of the boat it protected. In most of the villages there are schools for educating the boys of the Cossacks and peasants. Some pupils are admitted free, while from others a small fee is required. Occasionally I saw boys flocking to the schools at sound of the master's bell, or coming out at recess or dismissal. I had no opportunity to inspect one of these establishments, but presume my description of the one at Mihailovsky will answer for all. The youths were as noisy as schoolboys everywhere, and when out of restraint indulged in the same hilarity as if born on the banks of the Hudson or the Thames. At noon on the 14th we stopped at Albazin to leave passengers and take wood. It was Sunday, and the population appeared in its best clothing, a few of the women sporting crinoline, and all wearing their best calicoes. Among the men there were Cossacks and soldiers in their grey coats or in plain cloth and sheepskin. I saw a few Yakuts with the narrow eyes of the Tungus and their clothing of deerskin. A few Orokans stood apart from the Russians, but not less observant of the boat and those on board. Outside the village were three or four conical yurts belonging to the aboriginals. It is said this people formerly lived in the province of Yakutsk. Once they emigrated to the Amur in 1825, one of their chiefs has a hunting knife with the initials of the Empress Catherine. It was presented to an ancestor of the present owner. Albazin is finely situated on a plateau 50 feet high and extending some distance back to the mountains. Opposite is a small river abounding in fish and in front an island several thousand acres in extent and very fertile, though less than seven years old. Albazin had already begun to sell grain for transportation to Nerchinsk. A steamer laden with grain left for Stransk three days before our arrival. Albazin is of historical interest to the Russians. In the year 1669 a Polish adventurer named Chernigovsky built a fort at Albazin, that his men might not be without the comforts of religion he brought a priest who founded a church at the new settlement. It is related that when organizing his expedition he forcibly seized this priest and kept him under guard during the journey to the Anor. The Chinese twice besieged Albazin, once with 18,000 men, and afterward with nearly double that number. The Russians resisted a long time, and were only driven from the Anor by the famous Treaty of Nurchinsk in 1689. When I landed at Albazin, Captain Korotov, superintendent of the Russian settlements between that point and Komarskoy, guided me through the ruins. The present village of Albazin is inside the line of Chinese works. 
and the church occupies the interior of the old fort. All the lines of entrenchment and siege can be easily seen, the fort being distinctly visible from the river. Its walls are about ten feet high, and the ditch is partially filled from the washing of earth during the many years since the evacuation. A drain that carries water from the church has cut a hole through the embankment. In it I could see the traces of the trees and brushwood used in making the fort. In the fort and around it cannon shot, bullets, arrowheads, and pieces of pottery are frequently found. A few years ago a magazine of rye was discovered, the grains being perfect and little injured by time. Captain Korotov gave me to Chinese cannon shot recently found there and greatly roughened on the surface by the action of rust. The position and arrangement of their batteries and lines of circumvallation show that the Chinese were skilled in the art of war. Albazin was valuable to the early adventurers on account of the fine sables taken in its vicinity. It is important now for the same reason. The Albazin sable is the best on the Amur, that of the Berry Mountains is next, and that from Blagoveshchensk is third in grade. At several places I saw these furs, but found none of them equaling the furs of Kamchatka. Some interesting stories about the siege of Albazin are told by the Russians. While the siege was progressing and the garrison was greatly distressed for want of food, Chernigovsky sent a pie weighing 40 or 50 pounds to the Chinese commander to convince him that the fort was abundantly supplied. The latter was so delighted with the gift that he sent back for more, but his request was unheeded. He probably saw through the little game they were attempting to play on him and determined to beat them at it. History does not say whether the pie was pork, mutton, or anything else. Possibly the curves of Albazin may have entered into its composition. Chapter XXI. Above Albazin the Amor steadily narrows, the hills are more rugged, the trees less luxuriant, the meadows fewer, and the islands less extensive. On the morning of the 15th my thermometer was at 16 degrees and the trees on the shore were white with frost. The deck passengers shivered around the engines and endeavored to extract heat from them. The cabin passengers, excepting myself, were wrapped in their fur coats as if it were midwinter. I walked about in my ordinary clothing, finding the air bracing but not uncomfortable. I could not understand how the Russians felt the cold when it did not affect me, and was a little proud of my insensibility to frost. Conceit generally comes of ignorance, and as I learned, Wisdom I lost my vanity about resisting cold. Nearly every day on the Korsakoff I was puzzled at finding laurel leaves in the soup, and did not understand it till I saw a barrel of beef opened. There were lots of laurel leaves packed with the meat, and I learned that they assist the preservative qualities of the salt and give an agreeable flavor. I can speak in favor of the latter theory, but know nothing about the former. The ancient Romans wore laurel crowns but they did not prevent the decline and fall of their empire. Possibly the Russians may have better success in saving their beef by the use of the laurel. During a fog on the river we grazed a rock, slid upon a sandbar, and then anchored, as we should have done at first, when in motion we employed all possible time, and, considering the state of our engines, made very good progress. Borstein learned from our Cossack the explanation of this haste. The pilots, firemen, and nearly all the crew, said the Cossack, have their wives at Stratinsk, and are anxious to winter with them. If the boat is frozen in below there they must remain till she thaws out again. Consequently their desire to finish the voyage before the ice is running. At Igirishana I met Colonel Schobeltsin, an officer identified with all the movements for the final occupation of the Amur. In 1852 he made a journey from Irkutsk to Nikolaevsk. 
following a route up to that time and traveled, he accompanied Moravief's expedition in 1854, and was afterward intimately connected with colonization enterprises. A few years ago he retired from service and settled at this village. His face indicates his long and arduous service, and I presume he has seen enough hardship to enjoy comfort for the rest of his days. His house was the best on the Amur above Blagoveshchensk and very comfortably furnished. In the principal room there were portraits of many Russian notabilities, with lithographs and steel engravings from various parts of the world. Among them were two pictures of American country life, bearing the imprint of a New York publisher. I had frequently seen these lithographs in a window on Nassau Street, little thinking I should find them on the other side of the world. One room was quite a museum and contained a variety of articles made by managers and tungus. There were heads of deer, sable, and birds, while a quantity of furs hung near the door. With a spirit of hospitality the colonel prepared us a breakfast during our brief stay, and invited us to join him in the beverage of the country. When we returned to the boat the steward was superintending the killing of a bullock at the bank. Half a dozen wolfish dogs were standing ready to breakfast as soon as the slaughtering was over. A Cossack officer in a picturesque costume stood on the bank near the boat. He wore an embroidered coat of sheepskin, the wool inside, a shaggy cap of cold black wool, and a pair of fur-topped boots. All his garments were new and well-fitting, and contrasted greatly with the greasy and long-used coats of the Cossacks on the boat. Sheepskin garments can look more repulsive than cloth ones with equal wearing. Age can wither and custom stale their infinite variety. Winding among the mountains and cliffs that enclose the valley we reached in the evening a village four miles below the head of the Amur. I rose at daybreak on the 17th to make my adieus to the river. The morning was clear and frosty, and the stars were twinkling in the sky. Save in the east where the blush of dawn was visible, the hills were faintly touched with a little snow that had fallen during the night. The trunks of the birches rose like ghosts among the pines and larches of the forest, while craggy rocks pushed out here and there like battlements of a fortress. The pawing steamer with her mane of stars breasted the current with her prow bearing directly toward the west. Just around that point, said the first officer of the Korsakov as he directed his finger toward a headland on the Chinese shore. You will see the mouth of the Argoon on the left and the Shilka on the right. Wait a moment. It is not quite time yet. When we rounded the promontory dawn had grown to daylight, and the mountains on the south bank of the Argoon came into view. A few minutes later I saw the defile of the Shilka. Between the streams the mountains narrowed and came to a point a mile above the meeting of the waters. On the delta below the mountains is the Russian village and Cossack post of Oststroka Arrowmouth, situated in latitude 53 degrees 1945, north, and longitude 121 degrees 57, east. It is on the Argoon side of the delta and contains but a few houses. I knew by the smoke that so gracefully curled in the cold atmosphere that the inhabitants were endeavoring to make themselves comfortable. The Amur is formed by the union of these rivers, just as the Ohio is formed by the Allegheny and Monongahela. Geographers generally admit that the parent stream of a river is the one whose source is farthest from the junction. The Argoon flows from the Lake Cologne, which is filled by the River Karolun rising in the Kandiyakon Mountains in northern Mongolia. Together the Argun and Karolun have a development of more than a thousand miles. There are many Cossacks settled along the Argun as a frontier guard. The river is not navigable. Owing to numerous rocks and rapids, Genghis Khan, who subdued China and began that wonderful career of charter conquest that extended to Middle Europe, 
was born on the banks of the Caroline. Some of his early battles were fought in its valley. The Shilka is formed by the Anon and Ingona, that rise in the region north of the headwaters of the Caroline. From the sources of the Anon to Oststroka is a distance of 750 miles. There are many gold mines along this river, and the whole mountain chain is known to be rich in minerals, including its tributaries on both sides and at its formation. The Amur as it flows into the Gulf of Chargary drains a territory of 766.000 square miles. There is a little island just below the point of land extending between the two rivers. As we approached it the steamer turned to the right and proceeded up the Shilka, leaving the Amur behind us. I may never see this great river again, but I shall never forget its magnificent valley and its waters washing the boundaries of two empires and bringing the civilization of the east and west in contact. I shall never forget its many islands, among which we wound our tortuous way, its green meadows, its steep cliffs, and its blue mountains, that formed an ever-changing and ever-beautiful picture. I shall never forget its forests where the yellow hues of autumn contrasted with the evergreen pine and its kindred, and which nature has lavishly spread to shield the earth from the pitiless storm and give man wherewith to erect his habitation and light his hearthstone with generous fire. Mountain, hill, forest, island, and river will rise to meet the rafter in imagination as they rose then in reality. A voyage along the entire course of the Amor is one that the longest lifetime cannot efface from the memory. For a hundred and sixty years the little post of Oststroka was the most easterly possession of Russia in the Amor Valley. In 1847 Lieutenant General Moravif, having been appointed Governor General of Eastern Siberia, determined to explore the river. In the following spring he sent an officer with four Cossacks to descend the Amor as far as was prudent. The officer took a liberal supply of presents for the people along the banks and was instructed to avoid all collisions with the natives and not to enter their towns. From the day of his departure to the present nothing has ever been heard of him or his men. Diligent inquiries have been made among the natives and the Chinese authorities, but no information gained. It is supposed the party were drowned by accident, or killed by hostile residents along the river. In 1850 and the three following years the mouth of the Amor was examined and settlements founded, as already described. The year 1854 is memorable for the first descent of the Amor by a military expedition. The outbreak of the Crimean War rendered it necessary to supply the Russian fleet in the Pacific. The colonies on the Pacific needed provisions, and the Amor offered the only feasible route to send them. General Moravif made his preparations, and obtained the consent of his government to the important step. He asked the permission of the Chinese, but those these were as dilatory as usual and Moravif could not wait. He left Shilikinsk on the 27th of May, escorted by a thousand soldiers with several guns, and carrying an ample supply of provisions for the Pacific Fleet. The Chinese made no actual opposition, but satisfied themselves with counting the boats that passed. Moravif supplied the fleet at the mouth of the Amur, and then returned by way of Ayan to Irkutsk. The troops were left to garrison the fortified points on or near the sea. In 1855 three more expeditions left Shilikinsk with soldiers and colonists. General Moravif accompanied the first of these expeditions and went directly to Nikolaevsk. The Allied fleet attempted to enter the Amor but could not succeed. The general sent his compliments to the English admiral and told him to come on if he could and he should be warmly received. In 1856 a few Cossack posts were established along the river, and in the next year nearly 3,000 Cossacks were sent there. 
the Chinese made a formal protest against these movements, and there were fears of a hostile collision. The reverses that China suffered from the English and French prevented war with Russia, and in 1858 Moravis concluded a treaty at Igun by which the Russian claim to the country north of the Amur and east of the Uzuri was acknowledged. The Russians were thus firmly established, and the development of the country has progressed peacefully since that period. As the Argun from its mouth to Lake Karolun forms the boundary between the empires I lost sight of China when we entered the Shilka, as I shivered on the steamer's bridge, my breath congealing on my beard, and the hills beyond the Amur and Argun white with the early snow of winter, I could not see why the Celestials call their land the Central Flowery Kingdom. The Shilka has a current flowing four or five miles an hour. The average speed of the Korsakov in ascending was about four miles. The river wound among mountains that descended to the water without intervening plateaus, and only on rare occasions were there meadows visible. The forests were pine and large, with many birches. The lower part of the Shilka has very little agricultural land, and the only settlements are the stations kept by a few Cossacks, who cut wood for the steamers and supplied horses to the post and travelers in winter. The first night after leaving the Amur there was a picturesque scene at our wooding station. The mountains were revealed by the setting moon, and their outline against the sky was sharply defined. We had a large fire of pine boughs burning on the shore, and its bright flames lighted both sides of the river. The boatmen in their sheepskin coats and hats walked slowly to and fro, and gave animation to the picture. While I wrote my journal the horses above me danced as though frolicking over a hornet's nest, and reduced sentimental thoughts to a minimum. To render the subject more interesting to officers and the priest grew noisy over a triple game of cards and a bottle of vodka. I wrote in my overcoat, as the thermometer was at 30 degrees with no fire in the cabin. We frequently met rafts with men and horses descending to supply the post stations, or bound on hunting excursions. I was told that the hunters float down the river on rafts and then make long circuits by land to their points of departure. The Siberian squirrel is very abundant in the mountains north of the Shilka, and his fur is an important article of commerce. We stopped at Gorbitsa, near the mouth of the Gorbitsa River, that formerly separated Russia and China and was the boundary up to 1854. Above this point the villages had an appearance of respectable age not perceptible in the settlements along the Amur. Ten or twelve miles from our wooding place we met ice coming out of the Corny River, but it gave us no inconvenience. The valley became wider and the hills less abrupt, while the villages had an air of irregularity more pleasing than the military precision on the Amur. I saw many dwellings on which decays effacing fingers were busy. The telegraph posts were fixed above Gorbitsa, but the wires had not been strung. There were many haystacks at the villages, and I could see droves of cattle and sheep on the cleared hills. At one landing I found a man preparing his house for winter by caulking the seams with moss. Under the eaves of another house there were many birds that resembled American swallows. I could not say whether they were migratory or not, but if the former they were making their northern stay a late one, their twitterings reminded me of the time when I used to go at nightfall, when the swallows homeward fly, and listen to the music without melody as the birds exchanged their greetings, told their loves, and gossiped of their adventures. Just at sunset we reached Shilikinsk a town stretching nearly two miles along the river, on a plateau thirty feet high. We stopped in the morning where there was abundance of wood, but only took enough to carry us to Shilikinsk. There was a lady in the case. Our first officer had a feminine acquaintance at the town, 
and accordingly wished to stop for wood, and, if possible, to pass the night there, his plan failed, as no wood could be discovered at Shilikinsk, though our loving mate scanned every part of the bank, we had enough fuel to take us a few miles farther, where we found wood and remained for the night, the disappointed swain pocketed his chagrin and solaced himself by playing the agreeable to a lady passenger, I saw in the edge of the town a large building surrounded with a palisade wall, what is that? I asked, pointing to the structure new to my eyes, it is a station for exiles, was my friend's reply, when they pass through the town, they generally remain here overnight, and sometimes a few days, and this is their lodging, you will see many such on your way through Siberia, is it also the prison for those who are kept here permanently, no, the prison is another affair, the former prison at Chilikinsk has been converted into a glass manufactory, just behind it is a large tannery, heretofore celebrated throughout eastern Siberia for its excellent leather. As we proceeded the country became more open and less mountainous, and I saw wide fields on either side. A road was visible along the northern bank of the river, sometimes cut in the hillside where the slope was steep. On the southern bank there was no road beyond that for local use. The telegraph followed the northern side, but frequently left the road to take shortcuts across the hills. We struck a rock ten miles from our journey's end, and for several minutes I thought we should go gracefully to the bottom. We whirled twice around on the rock before we left it, and our captain feared we had sprung a leak. When once more afloat Borstein and I packed our baggage and prepared for the shore, we ate the last of our preserves and gave sundry odds and ends to the Cossacks. As a last act we opened the remaining bottles of a case of champagne and joined officers and fellow passengers in drinking everybody's health. Late in the afternoon of the 20th October we were in sight of Stransk. The summer barracks were first visible, and a moment later I could see the church dome. In nearly all Russian towns the churches are the first objects visible on arriving and the last on departing, though house of worship is no less prominent in the picture of a Russian village than the ceremonies of religion in the daily life of the people. There was a large crowd on the bank to welcome us. Officers, soldiers, merchants, Cossacks, peasants, women, children, and dogs were in goodly numbers. Our own officers were in full uniform to make their calls on shore. The change of costume that came over several passengers was interesting in the extreme. At last the steamer ceased her asthmatic wheeze and dropped her anchor at the landing. 